How did you gain confidence as an introvert? Well, I think there's huge power in knowing that, first of all, that you are one, and secondly, that that's okay. Uh, because I think that uh, a lot of us, when we're younger, we're told, you know, speak up. Uh, what, you know, I also had friends say to me, why are you so quiet all the time? Why aren't you speaking as much as other people? And I was sitting there really happy, thinking, well, I'm enjoying the evening as much as everybody else. I just don't <laughs> feel the need to speak right, right. now. And, uh, you know, like we were saying before, half the world is introvert. So it, it is okay. And many of many brilliant thinkers, many brilliant creators and leaders have been introverts. Hello, and welcome to episode 89 of the Quiet and Strong podcast, especially for introverts. I'm your host, David Hall and the creator of quietandstrong.com. It's a weekly podcast dedicated to understanding the strengths and needs of introverts. Introversion is not something to fix, but to be embraced. Normally, we will air each episode on a Monday. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite platform. Leave a review, tell a friend, help get the word out there. Business leaders all over the world rely on Richard Newman to transform their communication and to speak on the biggest stages. One client won over $1 billion in new business in one year using Richard's techniques. His team has trained 120,000 clients worldwide. But Richard had to learn it all from scratch. Richard is highly introverted. He has high-functioning autism. He was painfully shy as a child. At age 18, Richard started his mission to discover the core communication principles. He went to live in the foothills of the Himalayas with Tibetan monks who spoke no English. They had to communicate nonverbally to understand each other. He then worked as a professional actor, studying how to walk, move, and speak to increase impact on an audience. He became a keynote speaker, coach, author, and speechwriter, winning the coveted Cicero Grand Prize for Best Speechwriter of the Year. All right. Well, I'm excited for my guest, Richard. Welcome to the Quiet and Strong Podcast, Richard. Thanks, David. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, it's great to have you. We're definitely going to talk about the work you do and the book you've written. But first, tell us about yourself and your journey through being shy and introverted to helping people all over the world to improve their communication and have impact. Yeah, thanks. So it's uh, it's a bit of a uh, it's sort of a unique journey, as I guess everybody's journey is. Uh, so when I was when I was at school, I was I was very aware that I was uh, I was shy. I was I was introvert. Uh, I remember from the age of sort of four or five, sensing that I was I was struggling with communication. I was struggling to connect with the people uh, around me. And early on, uh, about the age of five, I moved schools and uh, suddenly found myself surrounded by a, a bunch of new kids and unable to really connect with them. Uh, to be able to make conversation with them, felt sort of left out of the conversation and struggled with it through school years and teenage years as well. Uh, getting to the point where I thought, I, you know, I really need to do something about this. In fact, when I was 16, a friend of mine bought me a book called Body Language. And uh, it was by Alan Pease, sort of the classic text back then. And uh, she said, you really need this. You've got to improve this side of yourself because it's good. this is good for you. This is going to be good for other people too. And I read it and immediately thought, wow, this is amazing. I had no idea about any of this stuff. But then I thought, well, maybe everybody else knows this. Maybe this isn't some sort of secret magic that I'm now going to learn. Maybe everyone else is a step ahead of me. And then coming towards the end of school, I think, you know, a pivotal moment for me 
I knew that I was not doing well with communication. I uh, I tried going to a, a debating evening uh, where there was a debate going on. I was just sitting at the back, just watching what was happening. And a teacher tried to get me up to say something to contribute. And I felt absolutely terrified and thought, well, I'm never doing that again. Like, don't ever ask me to speak in front of an audience. Um, but sort of shortly after that, there was a friend of mine who I, who I love and who I think is brilliant, who his dream was to go to Oxford University, which in the UK, you know, that's like going to Harvard or Yale. It's like the big thing that you, academically you might root for. And he was uh, rejected from there. And one of the comments they made in his letter was that his communication skills in the interview uh, had not been what they hoped for. And that really struck me where I thought he's so brilliant. He's so talented. He is the best read person that I could imagine. Uh, he, he clearly deserved to be there, but the communication skills was the place where they rejected him. So I thought, I, I have to overcome this. I've got to work on this piece. And so what I did was uh, I had university offers, but I rejected all of them. And I decided to go and live in the foothills of the Himalayas, where I was teaching English to Tibetan monks. And so, uh, of course, I mean, an introvert like me would be drawn to the idea of living in a monastery uh, where there's, there's a lot of silence time. Um, but also what it forced me to do was that every single day I would need to stand up and command a group of people and, and teach them. And I couldn't, when I got there, I couldn't speak to them in English because they didn't understand English. And so I had to use my body language and tone of voice every day to engage them, uh, to hold them captive, to really communicate with them and get to the point where they could understand me. And also every day I was working with a group of kids aged nine till uh, nine to 12 uh, years old at a local Tibetan school. And uh, I, in that situation, some of them, they could speak uh, a few words of English or better English, but I was still needing to navigate. How do I grab their attention? How do I communicate? How do I command respect? And I did that for six months and loved the experience and came back to the UK. I then uh, studied acting. And, you know, you and I were speaking about this briefly before, but I'd always loved acting from about the age of four or five. I'd put myself forward for school plays and felt liberated by it because when I when I was given a script, I thought, I finally know what to say. Uh, somebody is somebody's put it in front of me. And if I say this, I'm saying the right thing. I won't offend anybody because it's here in the script. And the director would say, stand there. And when you say this word, move over there. So I, I found it hugely liberating. I love doing musicals as well, because then you not only know what to say, but you know what intonation you're supposed to have, what pitch the word should have, how fast to say it too. So, uh, so I love doing that. And what I learned, though, in London Acting School was they taught you all about presence, storytelling, how to sit, breathe and move in a way that would have an impact on somebody else, which was just extraordinary for me, uh, you know, really lapping up, learning how to communicate non-verbally and how to bring a story to life. And then uh, after that, I did a little bit of work with acting, but very quickly turned that as a passion into coaching other people and that then grew and over the course of that's been growing now for 22 years i started this hobby business and we've now trained 120,000 people so it's it's been an incredible journey that's amazing that's a great story and how those things played into the work that you're doing now helping other people speak and communicate and that's awesome mm. so yeah what was the, it um, to, to to build on that, sorry, uh, David, yeah, helping other people there, what I quite like in what I'm doing is that what I've noticed is that other people who teach communication sometimes come at it because they've been told, oh, you're a great communicator. Come and teach me how to do that. And they haven't necessarily had the challenge of having to figure out how to communicate. And so when they're teaching somebody else who has that challenge, 
then they may not know what that journey is because they've never taken the journey. And so that's what uh, I always love to do is to work with people who say, look, you know, I'm really scared to stand up and speak to people. I don't know what to do with my body language. And to be able to say to them, look, I've been on this journey. I know exactly where you are on the journey and I can, I can bring you forward. So that's, that's really what I love about what we do. Yeah, that's, that's great. Cause you do know the challenges that some other people might take for granted, having never had those challenges, not understanding mm. how to help someone that has them. That's, that's really great. Yeah. The podcast is designed to help introverts understand their strengths and needs. How did you gain confidence as an introvert? Well, I think there's huge power in knowing that, first of all, that you are one. And secondly, that that's okay. Uh, because I think that uh, a lot of us, when we're younger, we're told, you know, speak up. Uh, what, you know, I also had friends say to me, why are you so quiet all the time? Why aren't you speaking as much as other people? And I was sitting there really happy thinking, well, I'm enjoying the evening as much as everybody else. I just don't <laughs> feel the need to speak right, right. now. And, uh, you know, like we were saying before, half the world is introvert. So it, it is okay. And many of many brilliant thinkers, many brilliant creators and leaders have been introverts. And so I think that as soon as I was able to recognize, okay, that's where I am, uh, I straight away realized, okay, quiet time is important for me. If I am about to perform at my best, I'm not the person who's out there doing banter with the crowd. I remember early days when I was building my speaking career, I went to a, an event. It was a workshop I was attending rather than leading. And somebody said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a speaker and I'm a teacher. And this guy was an after dinner speaker and very much an extrovert. And he said, no, you can't possibly be. Tell me a joke. Say something funny. And I had to explain to him that that's not my process. I mean, if you're if you're an extra extrovert and stand up comedian, great. That's that's not who I am. What I do is I I take quiet time. I like to be really well prepared, and that preparation for me is also liberation. I don't use preparation to handcuff myself such that I have to do things that way. But it becomes liberating because I'm so confident that I I know where I'm heading and why I'm heading there, and I've really had that time to prepare my thoughts to the best of my ability. And I remember one of the uh, the first uh, full day workshops that I ran for for a group. It's only about ten people, and uh, I'd prepared for months. I'd gone over and over my material. And this lady at about three o'clock in the afternoon, she said, "Richard, I've got to stop you and just ask: How is it possible that you're doing what you're doing? Like you haven't said um or er uh once. You just seem in complete command of what's going on." And I, I had to say to her, "You know, it's." it's down to the level of preparation. Like it, it, that's what it takes for me. Other people can stand up and just go, but for me, that preparation time is okay. And you know, I take uh, confidence in hearing about other people doing this. So uh, I've been told, I haven't looked at behind this, but someone was telling me that uh, Barack Obama is uh, an introvert. And there's a nice picture of him at the 2004 Democratic National Convention, which is, I believe, where he did sort of a, quite a breakthrough speech. And it's before he gets on stage and he's just completely by himself, um, having a quiet moment. I think his eyes are closed and he's looking at the floor and it's showing that uh, preparation moment, which my team knows that uh, what I like to do when I'm running workshops is have a member of my team who is an extrovert, because if the client comes up and says, hey, Richard, what's going on? Let's chat. Let's talk. What I want to do is my preparation. And so I say, oh, here's Bob from my team. And uh, Bob, why don't you have a chat with Angela and uh, <laughs> see what needs to be done? And then I yeah. take my quiet time. So, you know, I think balancing things out that way can work. And I would say for introverts, just trust the fact that it's okay not to do what extroverts are doing in their preparation. Yeah, that's what this show is about. And it's 
what do you need? Because I'm the same way. Yeah. If I'm going to give a speech, I need to prepare ahead of time. Or, you know, even before mm. this podcast, I did just some quiet time before we got started. And it's just normal. And yeah. my extroverted friends can get up and wing it and everybody loves it. But it's not me. So that's, that's <laughs> amazing. What would you say is a strength of yours because of introversion? Uh, what I... What I particularly like, what I really enjoy is the ability to be creative by myself. And uh, what I mean is that I, I notice this when I'm running workshops and you know, I could have people in front of me, anything from 10 people up to a thousand people at a time. And if I set a task where I say, okay, I'd like you all to uh, write a story using the storytelling techniques I, I've worked on with you, something you can use in your business, off you go. And the introverts go. And they, they've got their finger on their page. They're working through the process. They're being creative. And I'll see the creatives nudge their neighbor, like, do you want to have a chat? I feel like I need to say this out loud to get my <laughs> ideas going. And so it's that different process. And so, so I noticed that, that extroverts can really thrive by having someone to bounce their ideas off of in order to get things to come to life. Uh, so as an example of this, I was thinking about um, uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck when they were writing their a script, uh, Goodwill Hunting, that won the Oscar, and that they would apparently the way they'd create it is they'd just get together and they would put a, a tape recorder in a room and they'd just do dialogue back and forth, being each of the characters, bouncing ideas around before finally putting, putting them on the page. Whereas, you know, I've, I've written scripts and books in the past, and what I love to do is just lock myself in a place with a keyboard and a cup of coffee, and I can go and I can live in that creative space. So I, I think that's that's hugely powerful the other side is that um you know just recently this uh, earlier this year i was diagnosed with autism and so autism is a huge spectrum and there are people with many greater challenges that, than i have so i'm what's known as high functioning autistic which means a higher iq and the ability of speech uh, but essentially what i have learned from it is that it gives me uh, for me, it's not a, a label or a, or a disability for me it, i see it as a way of seeing the world differently uh, which is that I have I have a different way of seeing communication skills. So people who are neurotypical, which is most of the population, they will understand things like uh, a banter and day-to-day -day flow of conversation. Whereas for me, I've had to really figure it out and figure out, okay, why is that person moving their hand now? Why, is that, why did that person breathe in the middle of the sentence? Why did their pitch go up over there? And none of those things were pieces that I really recognized uh, early on. And so that's been very powerful because then I've been able to fully break down communication and see it from a different perspective. And then I can help other people break it down for themselves. So I always think that anything that you've got that gives you a different perspective to other people, whatever that may be, whether it's being introvert, autistic or something else is it's so valuable because what we've seen in companies, and there's a lot of talk of this recently is that neurodiversity within an organization is something that can create um, much greater strength for a company because people are seeing things from a different perspective. And so in, in any way that someone listening to this is different to those around them, that's a strength. Yeah. And it's so needed because that's often the great changes that are made are made by somebody that sees things differently. And that's so mm. important, you know, whether it be in our organizations or just globally, you know, the people that see things differently, that's who makes the changes. So that is mm. a very important point. So I am enjoying your book, your book, You Were Born to Speak. And I want to just start, like, tell us about the title, You Were Born to Speak. Yeah, this, uh, this title, I, I, you know, I thought for a long time about what I wanted it to be. And essentially, I, I went for this because 
One of the big objections that I have walked into over two decades of teaching people communication is that some people say, ah, I don't know if this course is for me. You know, you know, some people are born to speak, some people aren't, and I'm just not, and I've never been good at it. And I've been on other courses and nothing's helped. Uh, so therefore I'll never be a good communicator. And my lesson really for everybody, I wanted to put on the front page, something that was a mantra where that, that would shift their mind. Cause the biggest, the biggest shift you can make towards being a confident speaker is understanding you are born to speak. That's, that's your natural state. So when you've got a you know, human being, when they are born and they're gradually growing, uh, say around you know, one year old, they learn to stand up and they stand confidently and they stand with gravitas. They stand with gravity on their side because if they did anything else, they'd fall over. So initially they stand with their legs together and they fall over. They stand, stand with their legs with, with their weight on one side, they fall over. Eventually they figure out how to stand with gravitas and you've got it. And then they start to use their arms when they're expressing themselves and um, trying to get people's attention and tell a story. And then they use their voice going up and down as they're telling stories. And they've got this extraordinary presence. And anyone seen this? If you see a child where there's a group of adults and the child comes up and says, I have to tell you something. And the whole room is riveted because they're using their voice, their gestures, passion, and they are completely in the moment. They don't have half a mind on their shopping list of things they must get done that day or half a mind on the future and worry that's there. They are in that moment. And the challenge then that comes up is that over the years, we build up uh, armor, as I describe it, where you might get rejected from certain situations. You might feel pain in certain situations that lead you to holding back as a communicator. And really what I often do with people is to set them free from those habits. And the challenge with those habits is that often people have had the habits for so long that they think, oh, this is who I am. I am these habits. And often I have to say to them, okay, that's not you. That's not your full potential. Let's put those habits down and expand who you are and bring you back to how you were born to speak. Uh, but, but as a final caveat, I'll give around that. I, I was um, interviewing a lady on my podcast going back a, a couple of years ago, and she was a specialist in early stage development of communication. And she gave some really interesting statistics on this. She said that 90% of people, that, of the children that she was working with, had uh, what she considered you know, neurotypical communication, everything was fine. Then there was two and a half percent that had some kind of permanent disability or challenge, uh, which might be permanent hearing loss, which was inf affecting their uh, ability to connect. Then she said there's about seven and a half percent where they will have a challenge that they can potentially work through. And it was only when I was driving her back to the railway station after we, we met where I said, I think I'm in that group. <laughs> and she said, no, you can't be. And I said, well, talk me through what would put me in that group. And I, I ticked every box that she mentioned. And, you know, she said it, it just it goes to show that if you really work on communication, then whatever challenges you're having, you, you can get past them uh, if you if you stay dedicated long enough. Wow. So you mentioned like when we're younger. We are more present in the moment. Mm. So how do we stay present in the moment in our communication? Yeah, well, it's one of those big requests, actually, uh, David, that I, I get a lot from people where they say, we need to have, we need our leadership team to have executive presence, or we need to uh, make sure that our managers can be uh, in the flow when they go into a meeting or, you know, individuals saying, like, I just want to have that sense of presence of mind because my mind's flitting all over the place when I'm doing things. So to talk about personal presence, the, the lessons I've learned over the years, is there's three major pieces that someone needs to work on to be described as having presence. So the first piece is to have congruency. And congruency means that your body language, your voice and your words are 
all going in one direction. Uh, because what we often tend to see is that you'll get someone who their, to their tone of voice and their words very often are going in completely different directions. People tend to put on this business tone of voice, which is very popular, uh, where they just speak in a muted tone as if to say, I'm not going to give anything away. And the challenge being when they go into a leadership position and they go into a meeting and they say, you know, these are the numbers for this week. These are the numbers for next week. People there are thinking, is that good news or bad news? I have no idea how to feel about this. There's no congruency here. And so the first step is understanding how do you get your body, voice, and words to match so that you're physically committed to the message. And that, that brings you more present. The second piece I always work on with people is outward focus. And this is particularly important, I think, for, uh, for introverts, is that if we quietly prepare ourselves for a situation and then go in, we are inwardly focused in that moment. And that's great for preparation. But when you get into the moment, you then have to focus outwards. So the way I talk about this in terms of speaking on stage is I always think of myself as a surfer on the ocean. So I can do all the preparation I want to as learning surfing skills. I can polish up my surfing board. But when I get out there, the ocean could be choppy or the ocean could be calm. And I need to watch the waves and understand what's happening around me and respond to it. Otherwise, it's going to be flipped over. Uh, and so you have to have your focus entirely on what is the other person doing? How are they reacting to me? What's their tone? Um, what's the mood in this room? And be able to navigate that piece. Uh, and the third piece that I talk about with presence, and we've measured this, we actually had a study published uh, I believe it was back in 2016 in the Journal of Psychology, where we looked at, uh, could you measure presence in terms of what someone did non-verbally? And we found that if you stand or sit in a way that gravity is working with you rather than working against you, people believed you had more presence, you're more convincing, you appear more confident, they were more likely to vote for you in an election. They believe you're a better leader. All of these things happening by making sure that you're going back to what you used to do when you're one or maybe one and a half year old of standing or sitting in a way that you're firmly upright, feet planted, lifted spine. Uh, you've got a slightly lifted sternum as well, ready to speak. And those are the things that people see where they feel, OK, this person is present. Yeah, so we've learned some bad behaviors or bad views on things, and we have to unlearn those and really learn to use our natural gifts to be good communicators. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, very much so. I, I always like to say to people, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you a technique here that makes you something you're not. I'm not going to put something on top of who you are as some kind of uh, charade. Instead, it's about pulling back the habits that are not working for you right now. If there, th if there are things you're doing as a communicator that are distracting when you're speaking to people or presenting or pitching an idea, let's get rid of those things and bring you back to a natural state of connection and communication. A topic I was very interested in your book is, is just about storytelling. It's a very important part of communication and, and giving speeches and things. What are challenges that people have in this area in, in being good storytellers? Yeah, it's, it's a great topic. And it's one where I, I've had the privilege of sitting and having a conversation with Robert McKee, who is uh, you know the godfather of storytelling in, in Hollywood. He's written lots of books on this subject. And uh, I was saying to him, you know, what do you think the challenge is here? And he said, here's the thing that, uh, you know, if people go to, uh, let's imagine they go to a concert and they listen to a beautiful piece of classical music. Nobody goes home that night thinking, I, I think I can write a symphony. 
But when somebody hears a story and we hear stories throughout our lives and then someone says, tell me a story, they go, oh yeah, I can do that because I've heard stories and therefore I can tell you a good story. And so, you know, just like hearing a symphony and understanding music and understanding music structure and notes, the same thing goes into storytelling that you really have to give it greater thought to understand what goes into creating a good story. Uh, and so what I tend to see is a lot of people will go in different directions. So business storytelling is talked about a lot where sometimes people think, oh yeah, business storytelling. What I should do is just tell people about what I did on the weekend, tell them where I went on holiday, uh, tell them about my emotions, uh, these sorts of things, which are not necessarily useful or having any structure. And other times people tell lists without emotions. And so I put it like this, where, you know, if somebody was to, uh, to tell a story, often it's so pedestrian in, in the beats that it doesn't really mean anything where if you said to someone, what did you do today? And they say, well, I, you know, I got up and, um, I, uh, I put my right foot on the floor first, then my left foot. Then it, I noticed it was 7.17 and I turned off my alarm and I took uh, 12 paces towards the kitchen when I then started to make a cup of coffee. It's that sort of pedestrian list that we often hear when we hear people talking in business. There's this bullet point and this bullet point and this bullet point. And you think, how am I supposed to feel about that? And if you're really going to be good at communication with storytelling, you have to understand that a story essentially means that you're lighting up three areas of the brain in the right order. And the three areas of the brain are you have to light up the survival mind, the emotional mind, and the logical mind. And you need to do it in that order for someone to be utterly compelled by uh, what you're saying. And most people in day-to-day -day work, they just focus on the logical mind. They say, here's the facts, here's the figures, here's the data, here's the spreadsheet. And they wonder why people leave the meeting and need two cups of coffee before they can go into their next meeting. Okay. And so you, you've got to make sure that you're lighting up the mind in the right way. How do you do that? How do you learn to light up the mind and not just approach it from the logical aspect? Yeah, yeah, great question. So uh, what I talk about with people is saying, look, there's, there's a piece that comes before the logic. It's not like the logic needs to be dismissed. If you need to go into a meeting and you need to give an update, of course, you've got to give some logical numbers. If you're going to pitch your company, you need to tell them what you do. Of course you do. But before you're doing that, there is a piece that comes before it, which is to make sure that their brain is switched on and cares about what you have to say. So to, to look at a, a simple way of thinking about this, you can think about pain and pleasure. So every human being on earth has an instinct to avoid pain and to gain pleasure. And this comes from back in the day of saber-toothed tigers. If uh, we, one of our great, great, great ancestors, great, great, great grandparents was out there in the primordial forest trying to survive, they were there thinking, okay, when this beast comes towards me, that looks like pain. I need to run towards pleasure. I need to run towards safety. And they survived. And people who didn't have those instincts didn't survive, they got eaten. And so we, we have those instincts today. And so when you're about to share with somebody an update or maybe pitching an idea to a friend, a colleague or a client, you have to remember before you give them that idea, they need to care about it. You need to open up that piece. And so you need to talk about how what you're about to share is going to help them avoid pain and help them to gain pleasure. You can also, as stories so often do, take them from the past to the future. So past pain and, and future pleasure. So it might go along the lines of this uh, and from their perspective. Always remember that the person you're speaking to is the hero of whatever story you're telling. If you're the hero of the story, it just gets very boring where people say, <laughs> yawn, yawn, here comes my boss telling me how he's a hero again. So instead you need to say, look, uh, 
what I understand from speaking to you so far is that, um, that there's a real challenge you've been dealing with in the past. And that challenge has caused you this, this, and this. And what you're really concerned about is that if nothing changes right now, it could cause you further pain down here. And maybe six months from now, this is where you could end up. You've placed them at the center of the story and shown them how the current situation could threaten their survival in some way. And you don't over-exaggerate it. You just state it as it is. And the survival mind says, wait a second, I need to listen to this because they're talking about a challenge I care about now and a challenge that might come up and be bigger in my future. I'm listening. So the survival mind's in. The next thing you do is you say, okay, let's talk about a positive future. And you say, well, you know, what if it was possible in this meeting, if I was able to share with you something that would uh, enable you in the future to achieve this and have more of this and have less of what you don't want and more of what you do want. And what if we could end up being over here in three months? W would that be interesting? Is that useful for you? And, or if it's an update, you can say, what I'd love to share now is how we can do this, this, and this that will help us achieve what I know you'd like to have by the end of this month. And suddenly people say, great, give me a spreadsheet. They're suddenly ready. Whereas most people, no, nobody really wakes up in the morning thinking, oh, just want to get into some spreadsheets. Or maybe some <laughs> people do. Uh, but, uh, but if you give them a reason to care about it, then they will. And then you can give them the logic. But you have to earn that right, earn the right to go to the logical mind by setting up the other pieces first. Yeah. Okay. Talk a little bit more about that. You're not the hero. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> this is a huge mistake that so many people make when um, if you think about it in any story, essentially, what does the hero do? The hero has challenges and the hero has goals. And you watch the hero on their journey to move away from their challenges towards their goals. But the challenge is in every person's life, everyone sees themselves as the hero at the center of their own journey. They have challenges. They have goals, too, and they're trying to move away from challenges towards goals. So if you go into a meeting, a conversation, an interview, a sales pitch, a presentation, and you say, hey, everyone, these are my challenges and these are my goals, they just look at you blankly as if to say, yeah, so what? I've got challenges and goals, too. So instead, if you flip it around and you say, no, no, I'm not the hero in the story. You're the hero in the story then that ena enables you to get inside their mindset, talk about something they care about. And in so doing, if you want to, if you're in, in a pitch or if you're aiming to influence a large team, you can help them move towards a future that's good for them and good for you by telling them that story and letting them know what they do. It also helps for a leader that if, if you place yourself as the hero at the center of every story and wanting to be seen as heroic by your team, you're going to be exhausted. You're going to work 2,000 hours a week, and, and it's just not going to be possible to do everything. But if you place your team as the hero at the center of the story, they are more likely to want to do the things that will get them there because they will see that they will be rewarded. They'll feel purposeful along the, that line. And so it's much easier then to delegate or get people involved and committed and passionately following uh, a project. Yeah, excellent. And I know as far as storytelling, sometimes introverts might have these beautiful stories in their minds, but they may struggle to get those stories out. What advice do you have there? Uh, so you mean if, if people are, um, they, they feel like they've, they've got something they want to share, but they just uh, don't have the confidence to start speaking? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think this is very common too, and it's part of the passion that I had for why I wanted to start and keep on running my company is that uh, as we often see in day-to-day -day life, it's not necessarily the person with the best idea who gets listened to. It's the person who is maybe speaking the loudest, speaking the most or speaking the most confidently. And so I've always been keen to make sure that people who have an idea then have a voice. And so 
there's a few different things that you can do to get around this. So I'll share with you a few and whatever resonates can work for you. So firstly, we need to get our minds to the place where we are confident to uh, to speak up day to day. And so that can start right from the um, from the first moment that you wake up. And so what I often encourage people to do is I say that your mind is very uh, open when you first wake up and when you last about to go to sleep, your, your brain waves are in a position where you're much more receptive to uh, priming your thoughts for a positive engagement at work or in your personal life. And so what I encourage people to do is put their running shoes by their bed. So the first thing you see when you wake up, it's not even the alarm clock, you see your running clothes. And so you put them on and you go outside and you can play your favorite music, whatever gets you into a good zone. And this plays well for introverts too, because you can be by yourself and you just go out, you can walk around your block or you can go and walk into the, the woods or whatever you have near your house. And as you're doing so, you will imagine your future. So this is called doing future history. You imagine being in a meeting that day or being in whatever important event is coming up and you imagine yourself acting and reacting in a way that you would feel proud of. So you, what you can't do in your visualization is imagine exactly what other people will do because you don't know. Remember the surfer being on the ocean, but as a surfer, you can imagine how am I going to act and react no matter what's going on around me. And so you get to the point where your mind believes that, okay, in this sort of situation, I speak up in that sort of moment, I tell a story. And so it's getting used to that idea and it's uh, creating a neural pathway such that when you get into that meeting, you just head down that neural pathway where your mind and your body says, oh, this is the moment where I speak up and you go to speak. What I also say to people in meetings is if it's going to be interactive, interact early on, get your voice heard early on, even if it's just to say, yes, I agree with Bob, just so your voice has been heard. Because what that also does to your monkey mind is it says, I spoke, people heard me and I didn't die. So I think I can do this again. So if you speak early on, then it just means you're going to be part of that conversation and more willing to say something else. And I'd also say, put yourself forward for more opportunities to speak. You know, that's what I did very early on. I said, okay, every day I'm going to be up for these six, six months. Every day I'm going to be up in front of this group of monks and five days a week, I'm going to be up in front of these groups of children and I have to have something to say. Otherwise they're going to run riot and run rings around me. And so I, uh, I also, when I came back to the UK after that, I signed up for something called Toastmasters, and I believe you have it in the US as well, which yeah, is we uh, something we, yeah. So it's, it's a place where you can go with a group of people, and once a week, you get thrown a challenge. You have to stand up and immediately say something and make it interesting. And that was great for me to build my confidence. So getting to the place where you can do that uh, is important too. So it, it, I'd say essentially it's priming your mind ready to believe that I can speak in this situation. It's going to be okay. And I'm the person who can say this. And, and the last sentence on that, I'd say, remember that your, your ideas do not speak for themselves. There's that long held phrase, oh, this idea is so good, it speaks for itself. It doesn't. It never speaks for itself. You have <laughs> to speak for it. So if you want good ideas to happen, you need to be the voice. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing too. Um, I always say that introverts have a lot to say because we're always thinking and we have a lot of great ideas, <laughs> but they have to get out there. Yeah. And, yeah. So true. And it's, it's just a matter of, like you said, make yourself opportunities to speak, but also if you need to change your thoughts around, you know, this isn't hard. I can do this. Or maybe mm -hmm. I've done the preparation. I'm ready to do this. And this is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. So as far as speaking, again, you've done speeches all over the world. You've helped other people do that. What does make a great, inspiring and compelling speech? And how do especially introverts learn to do that? 
Yeah, it, it's a it's a good question, and I think that the key to this is it, how do you measure the impact? And for me, the impact is measured by does anybody do anything afterwards? Because you can have a rousing speech, you can have a, a standing ovation from a speech, and then people say, "Great, is that coffee?" And off they go, and nothing happens. <laughs> uh, so, so the impact for me is always: does anybody do anything after this? And so that that's how I'm always aiming to to measure something. And uh, you know, I, I often actually will teach and speak at, at uh, conferences, and quite often I'm the last speaker. And my job there is I say to them, how many times have you been to this uh, you know, leadership getaway or the, the sales kickoff meeting and people said amazing things and then you get back there the next year and you think, oh, did we do anything based on what we said last year? I'm not really sure we did. So life gets busy. So I'm often there saying, how are you actually going to make sure that something happens based on this uh, event? And so uh, th there's a few things that are, that are key to that. Firstly, to make an impact, you have to make sure you get the person emotionally involved in what you're saying. If they're cognitively involved and they go, yeah, okay, I, I understand that, it, they're not actually necessarily going to do it. I mean, you know, this has been proven for years by the um, tobacco industry. You can say to someone, Smoking, smoking's not good for you. And they go, yeah, I, I get that, but they're still smoking. So it's not actually changing the way they feel or they, they act if they're aiming to give up smoking. So you must get somebody emotionally involved uh, in your message. And the, the other piece that I want people to do as well to make an impact is to make sure they can share it. And that's where the power of story, having a clear, concise story and often having a clear, concise headline is uh, a way that people can move away from that event, that interaction, and then share what you've said because they can sum it up in the space of 30 seconds or a minute because they remember the story that went through. It wasn't a conveyor belt message. It was a journey that you took them on that allowed them then to, to move away and, and do something with it. Very good. Very good. And then how do people prepare to give those speeches? <laughs> yeah. So I think uh, something that people often miss here, and this is you know a very important message for introverts as well, is that often we do go away to our own space to prepare and then we show up with what we've got and we might get rejected from that. And so to avoid that, what I often say to people is, if you are preparing to give a, a good speech, it's important to thoroughly understand the mind of the audience. So to give you a reference point for this, about a year and a half ago, a client came to me and said, could your team work on this project? And I said, yes, I think we can. I think that we've got the expertise you need. But before we do it, I want to interview six people on your team before we come and do that first big workshop, because they're saying, you know, come and work with 50 of our leaders and uh, help them in this space. And so I interviewed six people from different parts of the business with different perspectives on what they thought the issue really was. Because, you know, I got the, um, I had trust in the person who'd given me the, uh, the call in the first place, but I wanted to see how other people saw the challenge. And that way I knew that I could investigate from their perspective. I was always asking, uh, aiming to be the mentor in the scenario and then being the hero. I said, what's your challenge and what's your goal? And what's preventing you from getting to the goal? And I would ask that over and over again. And that meant that when I started, I was then able to incorporate their journeys, their stories. And I said, look, you know, I've really enjoyed getting to know your team. And here's what I've understood. The challenge that some of you are facing is this and others of you are facing this. And here's the challenge that some of you also face. And straight away I had them. They were saying, you totally understand us. You don't just understand the concept you're going to teach. You understand us. And then I said, the goal I know you're, you're aiming for is this piece over here. And you might also be looking for this. And so it's just taking that time to really make sure that 
no matter how brilliant and universal your message may be in any given presentation, pitch or speech, you've got to make sure that you understand the nuances of the people that you're about to speak to. And actually, I'll just give a shout out to a member of my team, Jamie. He got a really nice mention on LinkedIn. I think it was today or yesterday because a client said that he did exactly that. So I've been away on holiday for a couple of weeks and uh, he was then preparing for this piece uh, when I wasn't here. And he did exactly that. He understood the team. He spoke to several people. He nuanced everything he was doing. And when he went in there, blew everybody away because they thought you've really understood us. And so we feel our, ourselves in your words. Yeah, that's so important. And that's part of the preparation. And probably a lot of people aren't willing to go do that. They got the job, so to speak, but to take that extra step and go really discover what the organization, what the audience needs, that's a different level of preparation that's very impactful. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think it's it's so worthwhile. I often say to people too, when they say, oh, how big's your team? How big's your sales team? And I say, well, my sales team is 120,000 people. And they say, what do you mean? I say, well, every person who's ever worked with us is out there giving us referrals every single day. And the way that they become a member of our sales team is if we go into each event uh, aiming to completely blow their minds with what we do so that when they leave it for the next 10, 20, 30 years, when someone says, hey, do you know a good speaker, a good teacher of communication? They're going to come back and sell us every single time. Uh, and so that's why it's worth doing the work. If you spend spend the work on that rather than the work on trying to figure out your marketing and your sales strategy, and that's going to give itself dividends. Absolutely. And so on this show, we definitely bust a lot of introverted myths. I think we've done that today. Introverts can be amazing speakers. It's just they may need to go about doing that in a different way. And I think we've, we've hit on a lot of that today. I've really been enjoying this conversation. Is there anything else that you want to talk about, about the work you do or, or your book or anything like that? No, I think I would just say that, uh, you know, for anybody listening to this who thinks, oh, I could never do that. I could never get on stage. I could never do a presentation. I could never be the center of attention in a situation. You absolutely can do it. Sometimes it looks like, you know, climbing a mountain. And uh, yes, it can be a big challenge, but you'd be surprised how far you can get if you just take one step forward every day. You know, sometimes it's a bit like if you go to the gym and you've never been to a gym before and you look at the people there who are so fit and they can lift the heaviest weights and you think I'll never get there. But actually, if you just start lifting the lightest weights and as soon as you're ready, you lift something slightly heavier, you'd be amazed by how quickly you can transform yourself. So I would say be patient, start and know that you can get there. You just need to be consistent and do the work. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you again, Richard, for being on the show. Where can people find out more about the work you're doing or the book? Uh, so the best place to find me is ukbodytalk.com. My team's based in the UK, so we travel all over the world, but ukbodytalk.com. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn is the best place to find me on social media. So it's Richard Newman from Body Talk on LinkedIn. And on Instagram, I'm at Richard Newman Speaks. All right. Thanks again. Yeah. Great. Thank you, David. Thank you so much for joining me. I look forward to further connecting with you. Reach out at david at quietandstrong.com or check out the quietandstrong.com website, which includes blog posts, links to social media, and other items. Send me topics or guests you would like to see on the show. If you're interested in getting to know yourself better, there's now a free Type Finder personality assessment on the Quiet and Strong website. This free assessment will give you a brief report, including the four-letter Myers-Briggs code. I'll add a link to the show notes. There's so many great things about being an introvert, so we need those to be understood. 
Get to know your introverted strengths and needs and be strong.